1: this on hello Hello? we're all science people
2: science exactly
3: we know it's a good idea because it's lasted
2: there's chemistry in here there's biology in here
3: it's in whiskey it's in ice cream it's in who you fall in love with
2: rules
4: And, and ethics and everything else
5: we can make the world better for everybody starting now Welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where, where science rules. Now, it's a call in show, people. If you want to be on the show, please go to askbillnye.com and, and type on in. I want to hear what's on your mind. And, and speaking of minds, uh, this is a good day to speak of minds because uh, we're talking about your brain. So I got a feeling that you have thought the following thought. Like when I see red, is it like the same red as like when you see red or is like what I see as green you like see as red and there's like no way to know what green and red is and it's like so out there? And I got a feeling we have all wondered that. Furthermore, I hope all of you, all of us have wondered how and maybe even why we wonder anything. Why do we think about anything? What, what are we doing with our brain that takes all this blood and oxygen? What is it doing when we're thinking about stuff? So you're listening to this podcast, and I hope you're thinking about what we're saying. And this is a deep, deep question which you might uh, summarize as uh, thinking about the nature of consciousness. What is consciousness? What sets humans apart, if indeed we are apart, from other organisms with brains? So today, you know, I'm joined by our good friend, Corey Espal. He's a science writer with an excellent brain.
2: Yep, that's right, Bill.
5: And with us today is Dr. Heather Berlin, a longtime acquaintance of mine and Corey's. And she is, I claim, I don't think it's extraordinary, among the world's foremost authorities on the physiology of the brain. And The Nature of Consciousness, you published 50 papers and all these extraordinary journals about brains mm-hmm. and thinking and psychology. And so, Dr. Berlin, you have strong opinions about consciousness,
3: which are correct. Is that right? They're all correct. <laughs> Everything I say is valid. That's
2: exactly <laughs> what we want on this show.
5: <laughs> no, seriously, people. She has, I believe, tremendous insights, and we look forward to taking your questions as we study today— the Nature of Consciousness, because here in our universe, science rules. Let's get started. <laughs> so, Dr. B, mm-hmm. Dr. Berlin, I have often pondered. I've, I go to, let's say, the zoo. Mm-hmm. Or uh, I have been to the savanna in Africa.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: And there's a giraffe, giraffing about. And I've often thought that it's, it's a spectrum or a, a, a gradient. Mm-hmm. There would be... There would be a cockroach who who behaves in some cockroachical fashion. Then above that would be dolphin, a dog. Then above that is a gorilla. Between dog and gorilla would be, what, my old boss? Mm -hmm. Then above gorilla (laughs) would be somebody like you or me who thinks, let's go, you, Mm -hmm. who thinks deep thoughts. Mm -hmm. Now, is that a reasonable way of approaching this problem of consciousness?
3: Let's just start down at the basic about how far down sort of the food chain does consciousness exist. The and brain chain. The brain chain. Okay. And so first you have to come up with a definition of consciousness. And what I do as a, as a cognitive neuroscientist is I look at the relationship between the physical mechanisms in the brain, the electrophysiology and the neurochemistry, and how that correlates with our subjective states like thoughts and feelings. Um, so that's the big question is, is what we're trying to explore is what are the neural correlates of consciousness? The
5: neural correlates mm-hmm. of consciousness. Yes. So how do way. I find a neural, a neural correlation?
3: Um, so right now, so we started out just looking at um, things like functional, like fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, um, different ways to kind of peer into the brain in real time while it's it's active, while
5: the brain's still functioning,
3: it, while it's still functioning, or
5: decapitating people and, and having mm-hmm. a look is good as a first cut. Get it. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Um, to so look at the neuroanatomy, yes, but not to we want it. We're interested in function. Um, it's activation. So we would what's have, activation? What's activation? Like when the brain is um when the neurons are firing, uh, and, and so we have these these proxy measures like fMRI is really just looking at blood flow to different parts of the brain. And that's
5: that's nothing. <laughs> Anybody could do that. <laughs>
3: um, yeah. So that's just a sort of estimation of like we think where the blood goes, that's where the neurons are firing. But it's a very kind of rough estimate. But then we've started to fine tune things and we can actually go into the brain with probes and electrodes and measure actual neurons firing. And so the whole idea was to say, if you have a thought, let's say, of your... It happens. It might happen
5: <laughs> You may be skeptical of Bill Nye having <laughs> a thought, but I, I tell you it's happened.
3: <laughs> so on that rare occasion when you have a thought, let's say, of um, your old boss, for example, there is a, a specific set of neurons firing that represent that thought in your brain. And what we try to do is track that. So we say, okay, when he has this thought, we see this specific set of neurons firing. And then we can make a correlation. That's, there's these, the philosophers call what the easy problem and the hard problem of consciousness. Um, Oh, let's start with the easy one. Okay. Um, And this was coined by a philosopher named Dave Chalmers. The easy problem is this, if we could just track every thought to a specific, or feeling to a specific um, set of neurons firing, like map out and make that sort of correlation, which is actually a really hard problem to solve. But theoretically, we can do that. Over time, I can map out in the brain the specific neural to every thought and feeling perception that you have. But then the hard problem is, can we bridge this gap of why is it that those physical mechanisms, the neurons firing, the neurochemicals slushing around, should correspond to a subjective experience? But the, so the, the the basic thing is is the hard, the hard problem is why these subjective states why the brain when it's firing should feel like anything but just to go back for a second to your original question about how far down the sort of brain line it goes when we talk about consciousness we're talking about simply first person subjective experience so it doesn't have to involve language it's just simply having a feeling like seeing the color red or feeling pain is a good example you don't even need self awareness these are all higher levels of awareness um, but Pure consciousness is just feeling something, having a subjective state.
5: So, just for comedic effect, it would be like this. <laughs>
3: That's correct. <laughs> exactly. So, for example, a cat—if um, you look at its neural architecture, the actual physical, um, like neurons in their brain—they look very similar to ours. Similar architecture. We have a similar evolutionary his- evolutionary history, and. When you sort of step on its foot, it acts as if it's feeling something. So we assume that it has conscious states. Are we getting to the big question? So what the point of this is that we not only now, we're moving from correlation to causation. When we used to just say, okay, you're having a thought, what's what's active in your brain? Now we can actually go in, stimulate parts of the brain and create a perception or a thought. Create an emotion, so it's not just correlation. We can cause a feeling of happiness and then take this it away. Is science
5: fiction. Hang on a second. Yeah. can you cause a perception of the color red?
3: Depending on where you stimulate and how you map out that specific person's brain, yes. I mean, if you're in the visual cortex and you can find the area where red is represented, if you stimulate it, we can make a person have experience of seeing a color red or a flashing image or a memory.
2: So uh, let's let's switch over to uh, the outside world. We have uh, we have Duncan. Uh, on the line.
4: Hi there. Can you hear me?
2: Yes, we can. Uh where so where are you calling from?
4: I'm calling from New York.
2: Okay. Can you uh, let, let us know what you're wondering?
4: Yeah, thank you. I, I guess um so I I've always been attracted to I guess what what I what I have called a, a physicalist um perspective on the nature of I, I guess um so I I've always been attracted to I guess what what I what I have called a a physicalist um perspective on the nature of like existence, you know, like the um, the only kinds of things that exist are physical, and and I think like like for maybe for many people it seems to imply to me that all of history is kind of predetermined, as if the the universe has followed like the only path that um, ever could have given uh, the way it all began, um, and I guess like my question was um, what what's your perspective on this 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 idea of you know um, a physicalist perspective and and whether that means predetermination. Um, And what that means for the existence of free will?
5: Hey, uh, uh, Duncan, are you familiar with the um, Foundation trilogy by Isaac Asimov? I'm not. This is where he says, if you have a the premise of the bit is that if you have a huge enough population, you can make predictions just the way you could about when water would boil or any other science Mm -hmm. demonstration.
3: So there's a lot there, Um, but. So again, I'm not a philosopher, but I can give you my um, neuroscientific perspective. And there is there's different questions between like determinism, like it was everything determined from the Big Bang on, um, or and this uh, and the uh, concept of free will.
5: Like if you and, knew the motion and position of every particle in the universe, in the cosmos, you could predict everything. Yeah,
3: yeah, and and I guess I'm sort of a. Comp- Compatible, compatibilist I think it's called in philosophy where it's like in between. Well basically there's this look the brain what we consider free will in the in, from a neuroscientific perspective is that if everything in the environment and this is a sort of cartesian definition of free will is that if everything in the environment was exactly the same the air temperature the everything everything you ate everything you did every neuron on your brain was firing in exactly the same way the idea that you could have done otherwise OK, you could have done something different. And that would mean there's sort of like a ghost in the machine or some other thing. But from a neuroscientific perspective, that we, we don't think that's possible. OK, and then we can actually do experiments where we can look at the activation in a person's brain, see what is happening when they're about to make a sort of free, you know, in quotes, decision. And like, let's say, even if it's something simple, go right or left, and we can see, we can do an analysis and see a buildup of brain activation that occurs in early studies about 350 milliseconds before the person is consciously aware that they're going to make even the decision. So,
5: when you say buildup, you mean literally over time, 350 milliseconds.
3: Yeah, we can see like We can see like a pattern of activation starting to like bring you up to a point where you're about to have the feeling that you have even an intention, not even doing the action because that takes time, but just we tell the people can report exactly see where this little um, ball is on, this little clock going around, and just remember exactly where that was when you first had the intention to make a move. And we can predict that, you know, up to 350 milliseconds with modern technology and things like fMRI and looking at blood flow, we can predict with really good accuracy up to 10 seconds before a person is even consciously aware of whether they're going to go left or right. Um, 10 seconds? Yeah, with looking at the buildup of blood flow and doing a statistical analysis. So you go
5: from 0.35 seconds up to 10?
3: Well, they're different techniques. So the one was using um, just recording activation like EEG, and the other is now looking at blood flow. So they're two different techniques, but you can basically predict what a person is going to do before they're consciously aware of doing it. So I often would say, like, your brain can sort of make sort of free decisions, but you're the last person to know about it. We want volition. Like, we want control, conscious control. We don't really have that. Our brain is deciding all the time. Now, the other question is— Oh, but
5: I'm very attached to my brain. (laughs) Isn't it the same as—distinguish. Yeah.
3: Well, your brain is basically um, controlling your decisions and your behaviors. And then consciousness, your sort of subjective awareness of things, is a very small little piece of it. It usually happens after the fact. The brain decides, then you become consciously aware, like, oh, I have the feeling like I had the intention to do something. This is love at first sight kind of thing? (laughs) I guess. Seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your brain, like, exactly. Sorry,
4: that's that's so interesting Mm because I I also... I have read a bit about those the original experiments you were referencing. I think they are called the, the the Libet experiments and um, Libet, and the, Libet. the small number of milliseconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Libet. And mm-hmm. um and uh, and and when I read them I was I was kind of skeptical because it seemed to me that it would be hard to actually measure precisely at the level of 350 milliseconds mm-hmm. someone's, you know, stated intention first when, when the thing happens. But the 10 second thing is really interesting to me.
3: That's studies um, that by was, that was um, John Dylan Haynes um, in Berlin at Humboldt University. Um, so if you're interested in those studies, you can look them up. But I mean, the idea, though, is that if, theoretically, if we knew everything about you, your DNA, your entire history, everything you've done in your life and every connection in your brain, we could theoretically predict exactly what you would do. Is this what situation. they call determinism? that in a sense would be determinism but um you know there's so many variables involved that it's so difficult to predict that you know um so so just in the sense of like is there a ghost in the machine is there somebody doing the controlling no you know the larger question whether like everything was determined from the big bang on is more of a philosophical kind of question okay which... but let
5: me let me let me put it to you this way mm-hmm. <clears throat> and duncan i'm going to ask you i'm going to ask you please chime in in a moment so every politician, yeah. there's four or five hundred people running for president in the U.S. right now. Each of them tells a story about this turning point, mm. how much allowance I got uh, when this guy told me this thing, when I, had, I took this one course when a professor. So it seems to me that's the environment influencing a person's cho- mm. choices in life yeah but is there an argument that you're not even making those choices? We're not talking about left and right when you go when the there's an intersection and a mm-hmm. pedestrian walking in front of you. We're talking about a major life choice like yes. where you choose to live as you brought up earlier mm-hmm.
3: so there's actually studies which look at that at decision making and in terms of on minor things and then really big life uh, choices and what they find is that when you do have something called deliberation without attention. So they have the... It's basically your unconscious can... Um manipulate many, many variables, take many variables into account. It has a, like an unlimited capacity. Consciousness is very limited. So if you consciously think about something, you can make a better decision if it's a simple thing, like should I buy this red oven mitt or this green one? You can have like price point in mind. You can have color, a few variables. You can keep them in conscious. But if the it's, old
5: oven mitt question. Right.
3: But if it's something <laughs> like, should I marry this person? Should I take this job? Should I move here? There's so many variables involved that people, you you take them in, Consciously, and then you know people say sleep on it, lie on it. Let I was going to ask you, yeah. yeah, that's basically your unconscious is still working on it, but you distract yourself with other things. Don't think about it because consciousness gets in the way, and and you make better decisions when you allow your unconscious who that can actually operate on, take in many more variables, um, and then it, and then sort of make a decision that way. You'll have more of what we call post decisional satisfaction.
2: Now I, I want to put a, a question back to our caller, back to Duncan. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let's let's say that. Uh, you know, we develop this beautiful theory of of consciousness, this deep understanding of the brain, and we can tell you with no uncertainty uh, it's all predetermined. We can read your brain to such precision we can not only tell you if you'll turn left or right, we can predict your next your next sentence and your next decision. How would that change your life? Would it would you would you feel different about your life if you knew that that you didn't have free will in that sense? Yeah,
4: I mean, I think this is a really interesting question. So my, my first thought is that I I personally don't think it would change my life. Um, because I think I'm very personally prepared, I guess philosophically, to accept the fact that um, uh, my brain might be actually entirely predictable, but my conscious uh, experience is actually of making decisions, and and my uh, my experience of it is, is at the end of the day what matters to me. But if if you extend it out, I guess that's one of my questions. I was I was reflecting on this idea about. Um, how useful it is in humanity's interest mm-hmm. um, to to talk about free will in this kind of a way, and and the, the brain functioning as being this kind of predictable. And I was just thinking about like psychological studies I've read about, um, mm-hmm. you know, people with like internal versus external loci of control, or like the degree to which you see yourself as in control of your own decision making, and and that being a big determinant of your own personal happiness in life. Mm-hmm. And my fear would be the more people that think about their lives as being um, You know, their brain in control of them rather than consciously making decisions um, might uh, lead to people being less happy.
3: Well, there there are studies also which show that there are a few things. One shows that if you decrease a person's belief in free will and then you give them these tasks after, they're more likely to act unethically. Um, and to, like, cheat on an exam. And so um, the psychological, um, you know, free will is is a psychological kind of illusion, but it's an important one that evolved for a reason because we're humans interacting with other humans in society. And the, having the feeling of having agency over your own actions and decisions um, is both it works with it helps you survive when you're sort of dealing with other people, it leads to more internal happiness, having an internal focus or locus of control, feeling like you have control over your actions, having responsibility for your actions. And even though we don't have free will in the Cartesian sense that I talked about, we still have, we've evolved the capacity to have self-control right? To be able to have... Some of us. Some of us. And we some hold people... Because some people often say like, well, if there's no free will, I can just kill somebody and it doesn't matter. You know, I, my brain made me do it. But we have evolved the capacity to have self-control, which is the prefrontal cortex um, sort of inhibiting these impulses and making um, adaptive decisions. And then we hold people responsible in terms of the law as well, to the extent that they have the capacity to have self-control. So if you have a huge brain lesion in your prefrontal cortex, you're going to be less responsible for your action. Or if you're a child where the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed until around your mid-20s, you hold them less responsible for their actions. So the the, the 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 evolution, why we evolved this um, psychological illusion that we have free will is important um, to survive in society and also... Um, You know, I think that to the extent that we have it, we hold people responsible for their actions. Okay,
5: hang on a second, Duncan. Both you and Dr. Berlin alluded, just sort of passing, just you know, sort of talking fluently, uh, fluidly, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. uh, it wouldn't be. It's it's better if people don't know that they don't have free will. It's just better. We can't tell them. (laughs) Let's not tell them, Duncan. Do you feel that way?
4: That, that, that's my honest question. Yeah, what is in humanity's best interest? <laughs>
5: <laughs> but uh, let me say, as a science educator, the less you know, the worse. <laughs> this is to say, <laughs> this idea yeah. of preserving ignorance is just, it never works out. It catches up with you sooner yeah. or later. But, Duncan, this is a great, I mean, this is a Can fundamental I? question. Thank you, man, for taking the
4: time. Thank you very much.
5: Stick around
6: for more Science Rules after this.
0: Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter. Where every day feels like Saturday, and french fries are a food group. Where flip-flops are always in fashion, and seafood is always in season. Where the boardwalk is bustling, And the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com.
1: This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at
2: funturns50.com. Science
6: Rules is back.
2: We have a question here from Emily, uh, a question about memory. Uh, Emily, maybe you can uh, explain a little bit more about your question for uh, Dr. Berlin.
7: Yeah. Hi. Um, so my question is, why is it hard to remember boring things, but easy to remember happy and exciting things? <laughs> <laughs> that,
2: oh, I, I want to hear the answer to this.
3: That's a really good question. Well, so it, the brain can't remember everything. It would be overwhelming, It'd be too much information. So it needs to be able to select what's important information to kind of remember for survival right for next time and what what emotions do is there's a neurochemical process where they kind of tag um situations as being significant like you see a tiger you get scared behind that bush you should remember that that's where you saw a tiger last time so
5: hang on emily what's an example was it a tiger
7: um it wasn't a tiger it's i thought of this helping my kids with their math homework and we tried to just talk about it, and it just wasn't sticking. So then we made it into games, and it started sticking better. And they were um, had an easier time remembering it when we made it exciting.
3: Yeah. So there are certain um, sort of mnemonics or memory tricks to to help you, to help kind of um, lay down that memory track in your brain in terms of the physiology of it. And one way is to tag it with an emotion. So, for example, if I asked you where were you in, you know, June 20th, 1986, you might not know. But if it was like your... 10th birthday party. Well, it could
5: have been a, a solstice.
3: Or a June. solstice. Yeah. <laughs> June 20th. Yes, Woo-hoo! that's the solstice. Whoa. I mean, it just it happens to be my birthday June 20th, so I just randomly picked that date. But, <laughs> yes. um, you know, if there was a significant event in your life at that day— you might remember every single detail of it. So um, and now if you want to take something boring, although I think math is fun. It's in, 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 What's inherently, more exciting than math? But, but um, if you want to make the memory <laughs> stick, it's a good trick um, to try to add a, a motion, whether positive or, or negative.
5: So Emily, was it fun for you to make the game fun or was it work and you use the expression boring to make the game fun I make the math fun?
7: Um, Getting ready for it was definitely work, but then once we were doing it and I was able to see them remembering so much better, then that made it fun.
2: Fun for you? Yes. And and, and maybe fun for them. Was it actually fun for them?
7: I think they had a good time. Okay. When
5: you say had, did did we not play the game of happy math excitement anymore?
7: Um, Sometimes, but... They are more caught up and on level, so most of their math learning happens at school now. They had some trouble in math. Um, We're foster parents, so they had some trouble in math um, at first, but now are all caught up. So most of their math happens at school, and we focus on just fun things
3: at home. I have a tip. Um, The teachers at school should also make math fun. (laughs) Yes,
2: that, that certainly would help.
5: Yeah. My teachers made math fun. And look, I'm fine.
2: (laughs) Uh, We have another caller. Uh, Her name is Jasmine. First of all, uh, tell me, where are you calling from?
8: Hi, I'm calling
6: from Berkeley, California.
2: Berkeley, California. There's a lot of thinking that goes on there. Uh, Or not thinking. I was going (laughs) to say, that's (laughs) what they say. Yes. uh, Maybe it's a a dichotomy. There's a little bit of both. Um, So tell me your question.
6: Yeah. I'm fascinated about, you know, what's happening in the brain when we're listening. And more specifically, uh, why it is that people tend to listen to respond rather than to understand.
2: What'd you say? Mm-hmm. Good question. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's the old uh, more of a comment than a question thing that, that drives everybody crazy when you when you do any kind of public speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so Heather, what what's going on there?
3: Okay. So yeah, a lot of the time, people in a conversation, if they're not really good at communicating, they're not even listening to what the person is saying. They're just thinking about what's the next thing I'm going to say. Um, but so there's the the physiologic process of information going in, you know, through your ears and how it activates primary auditory cortex, and then there's a part of your brain called Wernicke's area, which is to do with the comprehension of language. So all that is kind of basic, but there's oh, yeah, a ten- basic I mean, auditory no, but- <laughs> cortex,
5: Wernicke's area. It was just day at the office.
3: But there's attention, attention to what you're attending to. Are you attending to what's coming into your ear, or are you attending to something internal, your own internal dialogue? But there are some interesting studies which look at communication where they do what's called hyperscanning, so they can Normally, you're in a scanner, a f fMRI by yourself, right? But now they have two people being scanned at the same time who can communicate to each other. So what they do is they have one person like reading a story to the other person, and then they look at how well the person who's listening comprehends, how much information they took in, how well were they listening. And what they found is that in the scenarios where they were um, better at listening, you saw more um, brain activation that was sort of in sync with the person who was reading the story. So they were when they're attending to the story, there there's some parts of the brain that are firing um, simultaneously in sync. And that was when the person comprehended the information. So it's not enough just to have the auditory, primary auditory cortex, like the hearing is one thing. But the what you're attending to is the really important part. And so if you are in a conversation and you want to really make an effort to listen to what the other person is saying, you really have to consciously say okay i am going to focus and attend and if you see your mind wandering off into your own thoughts or somewhere else to refocus
2: and now do we know at the at this neurological level at this observable level uh, do we actually see some brains are yeah you know, some people are better listeners than other listeners that some brains are better at that task than other brains.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I don't, you know, these were um, sort of snapshots in time. So we'd have to like do a longitudinal study to see if it keeps happening in the same individual and if it's really a pattern.
5: I have seen you, Dr. Berlin, uh make a joke about your husband's inability to listen. That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) He's
3: just turned down the volume. It's like off. I actually, I don't There was this film with um, Kate Winslet. It was like about a couple living in suburbia. It was her and Leo DiCaprio. I can't remember the name of the film. Um, But by the end of it, there was another old couple. And this was very telling of the marriage. By the end of it,
5: Revolutionary Road. That's
3: it. Revolutionary Road. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you got that information from the recesses of your brain and not the computer. (laughs) No, I no, got no. it
2: from the producer in the
5: other
3: that's room. That's
2: right, exactly. <laughs> Revolutionary we, we call that the extended mind.
5: <laughs> exactly. Well, we can have information outside of our bodies. It's that, not a bad So there they are, these two
3: actors in suburbia. So if you see the end of the movie, I'm going to give it away. Um, <gasps> there's this old couple, and the woman is talking to her husband, and they seem like a nice old couple. And you could just see he... Um, Has this hearing aid and he just shuts down, (laughs) tones down the volume. (laughs) And, you know, he's sitting there nodding his head. She's talking and just, you know, there's nothing getting in. Yeah.
5: But let me ask you this this is a very, very common thing, Mm -hmm. and jokes have been written about it for years. You meet somebody, (laughs) he or she tells you, his or her name, and you just don't know what the heck you can't, for the life you remember what the person, because you must be taking in all this other stuff, yeah?
3: Yeah. Well, when we test, uh, I test patients who are starting, like, who are getting older, starting to have memory problems, and we we give something called the Boston Naming Task, but what we find is that proper nouns are very hard to remember because they're not as common as words like pencil or tree or, you know... um, regular nouns. And so they're they're oddities. A name, you have to really, again, make a conscious effort to associate that name. Because if it's the first time, you don't even have any practice with it, right? Now, if it's someone you've known for 10 years, you'll remember their name right? But it's that initial, um, you, you have to create something that's going to tag that as being important. And that's, again, like sort of referring to what we were talking about earlier. Or else it's just a random piece of information that, that's, that's not that important.
2: Okay. Now, hold on. Before we move on, I feel like we are possibly guilty of listening rather than understanding. So I want to know from Jasmine, what is it? When do you have this experience? Or, or is this a problem that you have yourself? Or is this something that you find people doing to you where you're you're talking and they're not really listening? I'm curious what motivated the question.
6: I, I think it's a bit of both, right? Um, I witness it in others and I witness it in myself, and I'm very curious about communication. So, um, yeah, I was just very curious about what's actually happening inside of our brains when this is happening because I witness so many people, you know, who are asked a question and then given a response that isn't even addressing the question, which makes sense how we get, we end up talking about two different things.
5: So, Jasmine, let me ask you this. Do you do this thing where you're, you're anticipating what the person's going to say? He or she is starting a question, and you stack up a bunch of possible topics, and so then you get distracted by your own topic stack?
7: Does that yeah. To
6: you? I mean, of course, I think sometimes when people are speaking and maybe they say something that resonates, maybe that sparks something that I want to respond with. Um, I think, luckily, I have a meditation practice, so I can witness that, and then, you know, come back to focus to actually hear what it is they're saying.
2: I have to tell you, as a reporter, one of the things that I've learned over the years is not to prepare too much for interviews because if you prepare a lot and you have all the questions queued up, you're not listening to the response; you're just waiting to get to your next question. And actually, knowing mm. too much going in is a real problem. You know, just when the person's starting to you know get emotional and get connected. You ask an unrelated question because you already had that teed up in your brain, and I think that that does apply in, in regular conversation. So, as Jasmine,
5: well. do you think everybody should meditate so that they learn to listen better?
6: I mean, yes, I do. I do. So, yeah. so how
5: how many minutes do you meditate a day, or a week, or what have you? Uh,
6: I try to meditate for at least twenty minutes a day. That's like an actual formal sitting practice. But meditation for me is really about like present. You know, awareness, so I'm meditating constantly throughout the day, you know, just like coming back to my breath, feeling my feet on the ground, um, you know, noticing the environments in which I'm in.
3: It's more like a mindfulness that's exercise. gonna ask
5: you about that word. Yeah. That's a fad. Go ahead.
3: Mindfulness is kind of um bringing your awareness to the present, and it's kind of um focusing on the sensory information, yeah, like where your feet are on the ground, your breath, which recenters you. When your thoughts start to drift off. What would you say? (laughs) Exactly. It's hilarious. Another thing is I'm acutely aware of, I guess it's um, because I I do a lot of communication and and I can tell when uh, the listener is wandering off, I'm really kind of hyper aware of that. (laughs) With your husband. Exactly. And then I bring them back in. I like sort of tap them on the shoulder like, hey, excuse me, are you listening? Are you here? And refocus their attention. Um, So it's kind of now I'm attending to many things at once, both what I'm saying and if they are attending and, you know.
5: Thank you very much, Jasmine. Uh, You stimulated some stimulation. Thank you.
1: Science Rules will be right back.
5: And now, more science.
2: Our next caller is named Janelle. Janelle, uh, welcome to the show. Where are you calling from?
8: Hi, I'm calling from New York.
2: Ah, New York. Mm-hmm. New York, New York, the, uh, the town so nice and all that? Yes. Okay, excellent. Uh, uh, Janelle, you may not know, but it's a little
5: bit of a running joke. The, yes. New York, New York, the town so nice, right. they named it twice. There, just a little explanation. Lead on.
2: So, Janelle, you, you, have, a, you have a question about uh, about... A different about wakefulness and attention, and tell tell me what your question is exactly.
5: I do.
8: Um, I have a really hard time waking up and rolling out of bed in the morning. Um, oh, that's so flooded. weird.
5: Don't start... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead.
8: <laughs> yeah, I don't start feeling fully functional until a few hours after I've already been awake. Um, so, I guess my question is can I somehow make myself become a morning
3: person despite that? Mm. That's a, that's hard one. So they're usually... <laughs> Dr. Berlin, you're doing some therapy now. Uh, yes. We're at the news Uh, you can use part. (laughs) Um, So normally um, when you wake up, usually it takes about a half hour, um, you know, subjectively speaking, for the brain to come online. What's actually happening physiologically is you're not in a sleep state anymore. I mean, you're back in sort of beta rhythm and fully what we call an awake brain. You're not in a sleep stage. However... Um, when you're fully awake, there's this switching between what we call the default mode network, which is what's happening when you're just relaxed and your mind is wandering and you're not really attending to anything, and the um, like executive control network, which is like the focused attention. And when we're fully awake, we can switch very easily between these two modes. Okay, I'm going to focus now. Now I'm going to relax and release my thoughts. But in the first half hour after sleep, some studies have found that that switching uh, capacity isn't as efficient to switch between the kind of daydreamy default mode and the attentive mode. And so people are slower to kind of get online, so to speak, or to have the capacity to attend. But usually it only lasts for about, you know, a half hour or so. Um, But the, the hours and hours of grogginess, I mean, what some people do is you can go to actually a sleep lab where you can get fitted with an EEG and they can look at this different. Because sometimes there's a problem in the electrophysiology of the brain and people have issues around sleep. Um, that that could be something that you you take a look at.
5: So, Janelle, uh, what's your relationship <laughs> to coffee or tea?
8: Um, I have a cup every morning and another cup every afternoon.
5: Uh, and is, uh, is it effective?
8: Um, it's Cuban coffee. So, yeah, it's really potent.
5: <laughs> so it is effective. And do you have trouble sleeping?
8: Um, I do. I don't normally drink coffee after the afternoon, but I do um, have trouble going to sleep early.
5: Because a lot of t- and if I understand this. If mm-hmm. you have trouble sleeping, you have trouble waking
3: yeah, I mean, again, there are a lot of different disorder. I'm not saying this is a disorder. You're but, saying we can't
5: uh, diagnose this over the. We microphone? cannot <laughs> diagnose it over the microphone in a
3: thirty-second, you know, five-minute call. However, um, you know, they they do say also if you have problems sleeping that. Actually, no caffeine is the best thing because your body, it seeks a homeostasis and it wants to stabilize and it actually could be better for your physiology to not put in these, you know, foreign substances that play around with your neurochemistry. Um, I'm just saying, but obviously, <laughs> anecdotally, you know, coffee can help.
2: <laughs> <laughs> anecdotally, coffee can help. Well, Heather, also, what, what about uh Doing a, a, a physical activity, you know, you, w- yes. you wake up, you know, going for a walk when you wake up, uh, mm-hmm. to sort of help get your brain awake. Is that? Is yeah, that, useful? that
3: actually is is very useful. Um, doing some physical activity can increase blood flow to the brain, and it might help, you know, sort of wake you up subjectively. Um, again, unless there's some sort of neurophysiologic problem, but that is a good strategy to start out with. On um, the coffee, for example, that problem I talked about, like, in the first 30 minutes of waking up, you're not really—the coffee won't impact that because it takes about 30 minutes anyway for it to have its effect. And by that time, you're out of that groggy stage anyway. So that, that in that case, it won't really help. But the long-term kind of—if you're having lethargy or, or tiredness for that many hours, you know, there, there's a lot of underlying problems that could be there.
5: Janelle, do you have kids?
8: No, I don't. I have a cat.
5: Ah, more than. Aha! <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, because I know people with kids don't have a choice about
2: <clears throat> when they have to get up and be alert
5: and get going.
0: Oh, <laughs> tell me about it. Yeah.
2: Uh-huh. That, kids give you that elevated blood flow that we were describing before uh-huh. when you hear, uh-huh. yes. when you know something is about to come and your adrenaline starts to rush. Yeah. Uh,
5: so, uh, I know people have thought about this. Uh, in the military where people are scrambled. Let's just say fighter pilots have to jump up and, or fly planes. Uh, but you say, Dr. B, you're saying it takes about a half hour to rev up. Yeah. Janelle, you're saying it takes a few hours to rev up. Is that right?
0: Yeah,
8: almost un- until noon is when I start feeling like my, ba- my brain really turned on.
5: Well, that'll work out if you get up at 1130. <laughs> That'd be perfect. Be an artist.
3: Well, there's also other—there's um, hormonal effects as well. So there's different, like, cortisol levels sometimes peak at different times in the day. That's why often people get, like, a around 2, 3 o'clock. They get, like, a sort of lull in the day. Um, so everybody's physiology is sort of on a different timer, and that could also be a factor.
5: Uh, Janelle, good luck. Uh, but I would look into how well you sleep just listening to you and being, of course, you know, an expert on uh, (laughs) analyzing people over a phone call, I would look into that. But what is amazing is that we are big animals running around. We're running the freaking planet, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But we need to sleep a third of the time. What's up with that? Like we shut things down for Janelle sleeps and then she needs a couple more hours to rev it's crazy oh.
2: and, yeah. e- and every higher organism needs to sleep that which is also crazy but
3: we need a period of rest yeah. and rejuvenation yeah so does the brain the body everything all so. right okay.
2: well uh janelle i hope you get the uh, the rest that you so richly deserve
3: now Corey,
2: yes
5: looking at the secret sheet this next car is this is a fascinating
2: topic uh, this is a sneak preview, but uh, let's bring it in. Uh, we have Elaine here, and uh, let's see, Elaine, where where are you calling from?
9: Hi, I'm calling from New York, New York, New York.
2: Good. So, so, uh, all right. So we can compare and contrast your experience with our previous caller's experience. Uh, but you have a very different question. Um, you have a question about hypnosis. Is that correct?
9: Yes, that's right. I I just want to know if it's real. Is there any science behind
3: it? Yes, yes. So, um. <laughs> Well thank you very much. (laughs) Great
2: question. No. Heather, tell us about hypnosis. I want to
3: know. Um so what really (laughs) it relates to is um suggestibility. Um and there are certain parts of your prefrontal cortex which are active when you're fully self-aware.
5: So, hang on. Okay. Prefrontal cortex. What goes on there normally?
3: It's um, the seat of what we call executive function, which is things like attention, organization, what impulse about, control. Uh,
5: seriously, algebra problems. Is that where that goes on? Um,
3: there's a more that's more parietal lobe. Actually, is is where we do math. Um, but there's involvement with the prefrontal cortex as well because you have to attend. Okay,
5: executive function. Here we executive go.
3: Executive function and. Partic- and there are different parts of the prefrontal cortex. And in particular, the what's called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is involved in our sense of self. Um, and when we feel like volition over our actions as well, that's involved. Um, when those parts of the brain are sort of turned down, there's decreased activation, we have less of a sense of um, our ego, our self. It feels like information is kind of flowing through you. And when those parts of the brain are turned down, um, you can take on suggestions much more easily. You're right. Okay. So you're, you can be more vulnerable to suggestions. And there are different ways to turn that part of the brain down. One is it happens during sleep, right? Um, certain types of drugs, things like alcohol. And if meditation, if you're in a very relaxed state, there and so Freud had it right in a sort of kind of way where if you Sigmund, can, Freud. Sigmund Freud if you can kind of turn down the ego and, and and get more access to these unconscious processes and hypnosis is one of those states where you can get somebody in a very relaxed state. and there, by the way there are scales of hypnotizability so some people are more hypnotizable than others um, so that means they're more easily able to kind of let go and take on suggestions and so what a lot of hypnotists do this is a trick in the, of the trade is that let's say they're doing it in front of a big audience they'll say okay everybody close your eyes, the audience. And now imagine a balloon is tied to one wrist and like a big heavy brick is tied to the other. And now slowly the balloon is lifting you up, 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 and the rock is taking you down, down, down. And you see their hands start to sort of spread out. And what the the hypnotist is doing is seeing who has the biggest spread, who's the mm-hmm. most suggestible, right? And so then when later he goes to pick an audience member, he's going to already have s- selected out the one who's the most suggestible mm-hmm. that's going to take on his suggestions when he gets them on stage.
5: So, uh, how do they do it with the, the, the swinging right, stopwatch? Right, the, mo- the movie version. Is there well,
2: any yeah. truth
3: to that? <laughs> no. So the, uh, there is something about like a repetitive movement or kind of focusing a person's attention. It doesn't have to be a stopwatch Elaine have you been hypnotized
9: no I haven't I actually did get pulled up for a show once but it did not work
3: <laughs> ah see okay so that was that guy did not do a good selection job uh, early mm. on
5: um, how did he select you or she
3: I, I I'm trying to remember it was a long
9: time ago I think that it was it was a small group and they just said if you're interested in trying come on up and then he sort of teared people down from there so people who weren't responding well he would you know, tap us on the shoulder and send us back down.
2: Right. Now, did you want to be hypnotized? What what prompted your interest?
9: Yeah, I wanted to see if it would work. I, I was so curious. Mm. I think part of it I had a hard time understanding him actually because the, the between the audio equipment and this in this big space it just didn't uh, yeah I think maybe if I had been able to focus more I'd like to think it would have worked it just seemed so cool
3: <laughs> There's also like a, a sort of unconscious or silent agreement between the hypnotizer and the hypnotizee. and especially if it's in front of an audience there's a social pressure to um, sort of obey and follow along and play along so it's almost like you're you're consciously agreeing to like obey this person commands. It's not like you're not, you're unconscious. You're there. You're just allowing them to direct your behavior.
5: You're consciously agreeing to give this person access to your unconscious.
3: In a way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're saying, I'm going to let go of my sort of control of my brain, my ego, and let you, and just let you direct me and take on your suggestion.
5: Okay, let me ask you this in what I believe is a related note.
3: Mm -hmm.
5: I have been, in the day, I have been uh, around magicians. Professionally, and every night the person picks the three of clubs on the deck of cards. Pick a card, three of clubs. Mm-hmm. And then one night, one night, I saw that this particular magician had inscribed a representation of the three of clubs on his thumb. Right. And he would wave this at the person, as I, then I watched the guy, mm-hmm. he would wave it at the person as he or she was coming on stage. And so there was this, if I understand it, Mm -hmm. this agreement that I'm going to go along with this magician by the audience member. Right, and then the three of clubs was presented, and then this person accepted it unconsciously. Is that a true fact? Yeah, or a false I mean, fact? we're
3: basically all always kind of taking on suggestions from our environment, and we're not conscious of all of them. So uh, most of our decisions that we make are happening because of things that are occurring in the brain outside of awareness. And so magicians and hypnotists can can sort of capitalize on that. And um, there's a lot of magicians who do it. Uh, Darren Brown is another one in the UK where he, he would just – he would actually reveal how he got this person to to do what they did by putting all these little, um, you know, bits of information in their environment that they're not consciously aware of but then pushes them towards making a certain decision which they feel like they freely made.
5: So, Elaine, have you – are you fascinated with magicians also? Uh,
9: not particularly. <laughs> 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 but I, I – I guess along the same lines. I mean, as far as hypnosis also um just the idea of it being used for treatments also like breaking like smoking habits or mm-hmm. right. um I, like on TV all the time you see people going into hypnotherapy into hypnotherapy to um you know remember repressed memories and and that kind of mm-hmm. thing is that is that also possible? It seems yeah. so far.
3: Yeah basically when you that prefrontal cortex when it's turned on it's it's we can see that process from studies it's it's sort of down regulating um memories and emotions sub- unconscious thoughts and and unpleasant uh, memories that are still going on and affecting your behavior. And so in hypnosis, it's a way to kind of turn down activation of the prefrontal cortex so you can more easily act, access these unconscious processes and perhaps manipulate them so that um, you don't keep repeating the same behaviors, detrimental behaviors over and over again.
2: But can you actually implant things? I mean, this is like a movie trip that they hypnotize you and they give you a suggestion that you're going to think something or do something afterward.
3: In a way, yes. Yeah. I mean, like that movie, in, I, I keep referring to films, but Inception, mm-hmm. I thought was a really good good example of that, um, you know, going deep into a person's unconscious psyche, implanting a thought or a seed, and then letting it, you know, develop on its own in the person. And that's kind of what it's doing. That's kind of what we're doing. So you got to be careful with what you implant.
5: It is time for the lightning round. It is time for the lightning so, round. So, Dr. Berlin, you are now on the lightning spot. Okay. That is, that's that's are... a mixed metaphor, but the spotlight is on you created with electricity. Best depiction of a brain consciousness in the mu- in the movies? Uh, I like Ex Machina. The worst depiction of a brain consciousness in the movies?
3: Um, Lucy or Limitless or any ooh, of those ones that ooh. say, oh, if you can only use more of your brain. You oh, can- yes. We yeah. only
2: use 10% of our brain If you imagine. just take yeah. this pill, we use 100, mm. we'd, be, we'd be able to like, dematerialize <laughs> right. and fly through the air. Yep. Yeah, t-
3: Total I, myth. Did the
5: Matrix get anything right? Yes 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 okay what tell us um
3: um, uh so the idea that we could have this whole sort of world our our whole universe is within our minds anyway so um like for example i think theoretically they have this thing where you can like download all the information then all of a sudden you know karate or whatever Mm -hmm. you know we we could theoretically do that it's all in our mind really and we could be living in the matrix and yeah okay
5: if you could be any animal like, what animal would you want to be? And I presume that's an animal that's not a human.
3: Is that a, that's a question? It's yeah. <laughs> <What? laughs> a lightning round it's a question. Lightning round, okay. That can, is and you, a and, and, and you cannot okay.
2: cheat by saying uh, homo sapien.
3: I could be any animal. I would be a cat because they just get to, like, hang out all day, relax, sleep. They're cozy. It's chill. I just I gotta want say, to be a cat. Ca- <laughs> <laughs> cat
5: I agree man. with the cat screech because I think cats are pretty anxious, really.
3: No, no. They're just, they do their own thing. You're you're misinterpreting cats. It's it's, it's
2: a (laughs) male-female thing. It's possible you've been hanging out with neurotic cats. (laughs) I
3: just, I would like to Well, they're sketchy. They're they're, they're hypervigilant. You know, they're hypervigilant. It's just a protective mechanism.
5: Okay. (laughs) I have met cats that seem to be anything but hypervigilant, but I'm open-minded. I would want to be a well-cared-for dog.
3: That seems uh, like a good so you're, route. we're basically you're a dog person, I'm a cat person. Well, I, I no, I have really, no issue with cats, but dogs are just like, <laughs> they're all like over the place, short attention span. They're not. what really Theoretical. No. <laughs> I don't know. All
5: right, are, uh, do
2: you have any food? I'm putting in for dolphin over here. Uh, dolphin. I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I want to do dolphin.
5: Thank you so much, Dr. Berlin. This has been so much fun. The nature of consciousness. I can't stop thinking about it. So I'm Bill Nye. And remember, when it comes to the consciousness part of our universe, science rules. If you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show. Thank you. Science Rules is produced by Jordan Bell. Our engineers are Casey Holford, Jared O'Connell, and Brendan Burns. The mixing and original theme music is by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Claire Rawlinson. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer of Stitcher, where science rules.
3: Stitcher.
10: I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects and I have to go in there and find 10. So we opened a drawer here and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Prince donated this <gasps> guitar. I'm Asif Manvi and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff.
9: Fonzie's jacket worn by Henry Winkler on
10: Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
0: Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter. Where every day feels like Saturday